0: Hello, and welcome to Telling, my storytelling podcast featuring all new works by yours truly. The following is the final piece of my ballooning trilogy. You can follow The Path of the Balloonists on the Gordon Bennett 2019 website or on YouTube, and you can find accompanying imagery on the Gordon Bennett website or on the team's website. Links are provided in the episode summary on Spotify. Once again, Be on the lookout for legends, swamps, mad scientists, jackals, and balloons. Part 3. After the Grail. Laurent and Nick hovered 6,500 feet over southwest Germany in a triangular cloth balloon cockpit that provided its two pilots with approximately half a square yard of living space. Neither man was happy. As the sun set on the second day of the Gordon Bennett Cup, the world's oldest, most elite ballooning competition, known as the Grail amongst aeronauts, they were poorly positioned in the sky and in the race. To maintain their altitude as the hydrogen within their balloon contracted in the chilling night air, Laurent dumped a scoop of sand from one of the 35 ballast bags tied to the outside of the basket. A high-pressure system had stilled the skies over Europe, leaving them with three possible strategies. Hang low, fly towards Normandy, and land before the forecasted strong westerly winds arrived between Sunday night and Monday morning, or rise high, over 13,000 feet, and curve southeast towards Sicily, gambling on the high probability of being grounded by Italian air traffic control or stay between the two decks where the air was still, try to hook tightly around the launch site without wasting too much gas or ballast, and wait for the winds to change. They'd chosen the latter, as had last year's champions, and the holders of the most wins in history, and the pilot who'd competed in 22 Pursuits of the Grail, more than any other competitor. Any mistake could cost Nick and Laurent victory. They'd spent the previous days slowly coasting from the launch site in Montbéliard, France, into Germany. But during that time, they'd drifted too far south. Now the strong westerly wind would soon begin whisking better-placed competitors towards victory, while they remained stalled 50 kilometers from where they had hoped to be on their second night aloft. Already they'd used over half their supply of ballast. Of the 20 teams competing for the Grail, they were now in 17th place. The goal, to fly the furthest linear distance from the launch site, drifted further out of reach with each passing hour. Under the light of a waning full moon, Nick took command while Laurent prepared to bunk down in a sleeping bag on the one-by-three-foot carbon fiber bench. Things were not looking good. The head of their ground control unit was becoming increasingly alarmed that their balloon would not make it through Munich's airspace before the airport opened at 5am. He advocated that they should remain south of the city, adopting a trajectory that would keep the team in the race but likely confine them to third or fourth place. Or worse. The team's meteorologist argued that they should pass Munich to the north. The debate circled via satellite messaging devices and satellite phone. A series of post-it notes detailing the struggle fluttered against the command station. A carbon fiber box lashed a foot above their narrow bunk. Their meteorologist advised Nick to descend in search of a nighttime temperature inversion that might produce a narrow path of accelerated northbound air. Navigating the sky during a race required precise meteorological knowledge. Racing was the art of rendezvousing with currents of wind at different altitudes. Nick released a small amount of hydrogen from the valve in the balloon's envelope. Despite their years of physical and mental training and months of reviewing their previous race performances, weekends spent maintaining their balloon and testing their instruments, and conducting short flights to increase their skills, plus several weeks of researching the forecasted conditions and plotting possible trajectories, their fate depended entirely on the winds, which were missing. Laurent bundled into his sleeping bag and stuck his legs through the small hatch in the side of the basket, his feet suspended over the splattering of lights below. The aluminum pipe and cloth basket provided only half a body length of horizontal space. If one pilot lay down, the other must sit on the small emergency supply barrel that doubled as a toilet or stand beside it. Even in the world of lightweight balloon baskets, theirs— of the team's own design and making, is extremely minimalist. It resembled a large canvas laundry hamper held together with string and duct tape. Nick had built it in his garage. Both Laurent, 47, and Nick, 52, were extremely fit, skinny even, but their tall, lanky bodies filled the basket. In the days before the race, they'd train their sleep schedules oppositely, Laurent going to bed at 8 p.m., Nick at 1 a.m., so that one of them would always be alert. Despite the cramped quarters, Laurent fell asleep instantly, as he always does in a balloon. As they drifted towards Munich, Nick shifted through the thin layers of air currents, searching for the power they needed, In this duo, Laurent had the real competitive edge. He could stick a precise landing under any conditions. But Nick was the one who could read the wind. The kind of inversion he was looking for would not materialize as a red line in the middle of the sky. He must feel it. A slight temperature drop. A minuscule humidity increase. Even their instruments couldn't measure it. If they failed to accelerate northward, A year of preparation, months of planning, days of strategizing, and all the momentum gathered around the Victoria project would be lost. Nick stuck his hand over the edge of the basket and touched the air. While Laurent and Nick wrestled with the poor winds in the skies, a few hundred miles southeast, their chase and recovery crew and I parked the team's small RV in a rest stop outside of Budapest. We'd spent most of the first two days of the race meandering slowly from France to Hungary, preparing to salvage the balloon and crew wherever they landed. Based on our twice-daily phone calls with the pilots, it seemed they wouldn't make it past Munich, and we'd have to speed north to Germany to retrieve them in the morning. I joined the chase team at the race launch site in order to follow the pilots on their quest for the Grail, and to catch up on their plans to actualize the Victoria. What excited me most about the plan was that the large basket design included the possibility of a passenger. I wanted to be that passenger. From the second I'd swung my leg over the edge of Yannick's hot air balloon basket back in Switzerland, I was hooked. In less than an hour, we had unpacked and assembled a giant flying machine, in the dark no less, and risen above the tallest forest's As a girl, I'd loved climbing into treetops to ride the wind in the highest branches. I'd even imagined walking on clouds. Then suddenly, I'd been miles above both. When the team set their sights on the Grail in 2019, I'd asked if I could join them. This team of experts Laurent and Nick had gathered to support their racing balloon would be the same team that would support the future Victoria. But which unit would I be part of? Ground control? Or chase team? Laurent inquired as we stood on the hydrogen field in Montbelliard watching the 19 other balloons inflate. In other words, watch from the team's ground control room, where weather and air traffic were monitored 24 7, or chase after the balloon in a van for the next four days. Watch the race? Or be in the race? Across the field, teams had laid out their balloons flat on the grass alongside their wicker or wooden baskets, while tank trucks with long hoses filled each orb with a thousand cubic meters of hydrogen, enough to travel four days continuously under optimal conditions. One by one, the balloons began to rise from the grass like enormous ghosts, slowly at first, and then, as their bonds were released, they popped into the sky and strained at their tethers. The future Victoria, I calculated, would tower over the enormous balloons on the field, 2.5 times as large, able to travel ten days instead of four. Chase team, I replied. Then you must meet Roland, said Laurent. The leader of the chase team, Roland wickey 74 also happened to be the greatest hydrogen specialist in Switzerland. He'd inflated all three Bretling orbiters for Bertrand Piccard's attempt to circumnavigate the globe, including Piccard's third and successful try, and inflated the balloon used by Jean-Louis Étienne to fly to the North Pole in 2010. Roland, the self-declared papa of the chase team, would share the driving with Patrick Henchaus and Raphaël Nick's brother-in-law and childhood friend, respectively. Patrick was a former parachutist who got into balloon chasing when he married into Nick's family. Rafi grew up in the same region as Nick, where balloons were always in the sky. Though Rafi had never flown in a plane, he'd flown and chased balloons for years. All three men loved long-haul drives and the chance to cross borders by car, and none spoke English. I'd been warned The four of us would live in a two-bunk RV for four days while we chased the balloon, and after we recovered the pilots, the six of us would occupy the same space on the return chip. It would be a week of little sleep and high tension. During the first two days of the race, we drove slowly through the alpine regions of France, Switzerland, Liechtenstein, and Austria towards Budapest, expecting that our team wouldn't make it past Munich. We slept two to a bunk, Rafi and Patrick in the aft bunk, and me and Roland in the forward. Between the 250-kilometer driving shifts, we dawdled around roadside picnic tables while Roland drew sketches of balloons in my notebook and filled in my spotty knowledge of the challenges of, of creating and flying a balloon the size of the Victoria. While I barreled onward with the chase team on the ground, west of Munich, Nick shifted through the thin layers of air currents still searching for the power they needed in the riddle of winds. Again, he stuck his hand outward from the right side of the basket, then the left, sniffing the air. Even when traveling faster than a car, the motion of their balloon was soundless. It drifted with the speed of the wind, making it near impossible to feel any variance. But after 48 hours of continuous flight, the body begins to detect what it might ignore on the ground. Despite all the data from the instruments and the ground control team back in Freeburg, Nick could only make one of three choices. Go up, go down, or remain steady. To rise, you drop sand. To sink, you open the balloon's valve, and then you wait. Everything in this ecosystem is delicate. Everything overreacts. The pilot makes a tiny adjustment, then gauges the response. Nick was tired. In the first two days of the race, as they'd hooked around the launch site, he and Laurent tried to maintain a strict schedule of sleeping in organized two-hour shifts. But, as always, it devolved into patterns of adrenaline and fatigue. Eventually, they slept whenever they could. When their thermos of coffee ran out, they switched to bottled cold brew. At night, they bundled into full-body snowsuits to fend off the high-altitude cold. Before he woke Laurent and handed over command, Nick wanted to find the inversion. He turned off the radio and all the devices so he could hear the air. Gas hissed from the valve, displacing the ether, and the weight of their flying machine settled into its new equilibrium. Once this balance was found, Nick moved about the basket with sloth-like precision and grace. Standing too quickly could cause the balloon to sink. Sweating too much could cause it to rise. Precious sand and gas would have to be wasted to re-establish the balance of the balloon's envelope in the sky. This is a sport of conservation. The longer your supplies last, the further you can fly. If your balloon finds harmony with a strong, steady wind, you can cross a continent in days, leaving nothing in your wake but grains of sand and vapor. Nick paused. There. Around 6,000 feet. A channel thirty to fifty yards tall and just as wide, barely larger than the balloon itself, traveling northward. They began to accelerate. Ten miles an hour, fifteen, then twenty. They were still in the race. Nick turned his attention towards Munich's airspace and the Carpathian Mountains and the sixteen competitors still ahead. But here was the splendor of the oldest form of human flight. Their balloons stopped battling the elements and became one particle of the millions being transported by the wind. This magic corridor of the sky was theirs alone, and its uncontrollable power began ferrying them precisely where they wanted to go. Monday, daybreak. On the ground, the race was also about to change. L'équipe de recoupe The chase and recovery team woke northwest of Budapest, expecting to be ordered back to Germany. But the morning phone call from the pilots revealed a different story. Overnight, Nick and Laurent had moved from 17th place into 4th. They'd passed Munich's airspace just as the first planes began to land, crossed from Germany into the Czech Republic, then into Austria, and, at last, were rising to meet the westerly flu. Our orders were to proceed towards Romania as fast as possible. Ten teams had landed, ten remained in the air, including the legends. Suisse 1, Spain 1, and France 2 were in the lead. Our pilots, France 2 and USA 2, were within 13 miles of each other. It was still anyone's race, and the real wins had just arrived. An hour later, on Highway M0, just south of Budapest, I spotted Suisse 2 crossing over the highway at 32 knots per hour, faster than we could drive given the traffic. That meant that Nick and Laurent were likely traveling just as fast. The chase was on. Our team honed in on a singular strategy, one first conjured by the meteorologist days before the race, when the winds were only hypotheses. The final destination would be the Danube Delta, a 3,000-square-mile World Heritage area of wetlands where the distributaries of the Danube emptied into the Black Sea, a controversial landing site as the team had to land on dry ground for their journey to count. It was also dangerous. This wild swamp straddled the border between Romania and the no-fly zone of Ukraine, if our balloon crossed the Ukrainian border, they risked the dangers of violating a potentially hostile airspace, an error that cost two American competitors their lives in 1995 when they floated into Belarusia and were shot down by the National Air Force. If Laurent and Nick could cross the Carpathian Mountains in a half-empty balloon, endure a fourth night at high elevation while navigating along the Ukrainian border, and land at the very edge of the Black Sea, they could win. All other teams further south would have to obey the concave curve of the coast and land at a shorter distance from the start. Just before sunrise the following morning, Nick and Laurent skirted less than four miles south of the Ukrainian border, while their ground control and chase teams nervously tracked their progress. At 15,000 feet, they were still within the powerful flue, flying at 40 miles an hour while the pilots wrestled with the high-speed winds in order to maintain a secure distance from the border. Seven balloons remained aloft. Nick and Laurent were in the lead. Back in the basket, Nick and Laurent debated when to begin their hour-long descent. In 10 minutes or 15? The longer they remained at the same altitude, the further southeast they'd be pushed, and, due to the concavity of the coast, the shorter the distance they could achieve. For Laurent, continuing to avoid Ukraine was paramount, but Nick advocated that they stay as far north as possible and push towards the furthest prominence of the delta. They blended the two proposals, descend in twelve and a half minutes, aiming for what looked like a peaceful field of grass just shy of the tree-lined beach. There, the Ukrainian border curved north, allowing them breathing room. Now, Laurent's superpower came into play, the ability to stick a precise, safe landing under any conditions. Below, in the silent airspace of the delta, rivers snaked through the lush vegetation, gleaming in the early light. There are no roads, I overheard Roland lament as we sped towards Tulcha a small Romanian city just inland of the Delta. This is the art of Le You advance, you advance, but you don't know where you go. Roland was right. There were no roads into the Delta. We'd driven over 1,550 miles in two and a half days and slept four of the past 36 hours. The balloon had crossed through seven countries. We'd crossed through five. But we're in first, I exclaimed. Patrick reminded me, it's not good to be in first place too early. Leading the pack means you can't glean information from the balloons ahead. Ground control had instructed us to head for the small airport in Tulcha to organize a helicopter retrieval for the balloon. As we streaked past cornfields and small stucco houses and horse-drawn carts, Laurent rapidly shoveled sand from the bags to slow the balloon's descent. 1102 miles and 82 hours from their launch, Nick and Laurent tossed their anchor rope over the side and let it drag through the marsh. They landed in a perfect kiss of balloon and balloon shadow, a few hundred yards from the beach. But what had looked like grass from above transformed into a thick forest of reeds over 12 feet high, the ground wet and shoe-sucking. The pilots resorted to using their GoPro and selfie stick as a periscope to see above the reed jungle. The tree line between them and the beach proved to be a vicious barrier of nettle trees with spikes as large as pinky fingers. When they reached the edge of the sea, a large creature loped across the sand. Laurent, can you tell the difference between a dog and a wolf? asked Nick. I'm not so sure. Turned out the swamp was rife with jackals. Laurent guarded the balloon while Nick bushwhacked through several miles of swamp to the edge of a wide channel. On the opposite bank lay the town of St. George, a cluster of 358 households, reachable only by the St. George River. The boatmen who transported the pilots into town explained that there might be some acute attention from the border police. Back in March, around 11.5 tons of pure cocaine was discovered in an overturned boat on the beach precisely where the balloon had landed. He showed them photos of the overturned boat and the cocaine. Sacks and sacks of cocaine. The chase team stepped from their RV into a dusty parking lot alongside a small canal marina that smelled of pee. Stray dogs stalked the road. The plan had changed. No helicopter. We'd extract the balloon by boat. An hour by hired speedboat downriver, we retrieved Nick and Laurent from the tiny, carless, roadless village on the edge of the Black Sea. Giddy with the beauty of the river and the end of the chase, we kept checking our phones to track the balloons still in the air. Four teams remained aloft. Any of them could win. Suisse, too, appeared to be almost a mile out to sea. I worried. Could they possibly have gas enough to cross to Turkey? Meanwhile our balloon lay in the swamp. The wind would change and build before morning, potentially damaging our gear and piling high surf against the beach, making recovery impossible. We had to extract the balloon before sundown, when the jackals would begin to prowl. Half an hour later, our chase team, the two pilots, and three locals pounded over the swells of the Black Sea in a small boat. We traveled south along the beach until Nick spotted the large plastic bottle he'd tied to a tree to demarcate their exodus from the swamp. We stumbled through the mud single file, the reeds so dense that if you stepped from the path, they closed around you like curtains. Amidst the tall vegetation, the basket looked small and fragile. We stripped it of its gear, carrying bits back to the beach like a chain of ants. Having furled the balloon, we hoisted it to our shoulders and waded out of the swamp like a 40-foot caterpillar with 18 tiny legs, at times sinking knee-deep into the muck. The rubbery exterior of the balloon's envelope slipped easily from our shoulders. We progressed 10 feet and set it down. The locals smoked, took swigs of beer, and emptied their galoshes of water. And then with a whoa, we hoisted the balloon again and marched. Next, the basket and the gear, a ton of material, including the balloon's envelope. The sun lowered towards the horizon. Unnerved by our noise and cigarette smoke, the jackals, thankfully, stayed away. We reached the wall of nettle trees, packed the balloon into the basket, and spent another hour pulling back spiked branches with our bare hands while trying not to break them. We were in a World Heritage Site, after all. We took nothing and we left nothing behind. At last, we crossed the shell-strewn sand and lofted our balloon over the waves and the gunnels of the boat. All teams had landed, and we had won. L'affaire est dans le sac, announced Rafi, slapping the bench. Victory was in the bag. The sea turned orange and pink. Tonight we would rest in St. George. Tomorrow the papers would declare Laurent and Nick champions of the ballooning world. If you spend your life trying to get the grail, and you get it, what is next? mused Nick. Laurent was not phased. The Victoria, he said. I could envision it perfectly. A grand aerostat launching from a place where there are no roads, and drifting across the sea towards whatever lands the wind chose where could we go next? Laurent smiled. There are no limits, he said. That's all for today's Telling. Stay tuned for more adventures in the next episode. In the meantime, be well, do good work, and thanks for listening.